Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. And welcome back to Coast to Coast. George Norrie with you with our special guest, Paul DeBoli, the Assistant Professor of Political Science at LaSalle College in Newton, Massachusetts. He teaches such courses as the American Presidency, American Political Institutions, the Politics and History of the Cold War, the Conspiracy in American Politics, White Collar and Organized Crime, Terrorism and Issues in National Security Law. Prior to teaching at LaSalle College, he has worked at and has been a consultant to several government agencies, including the United States Marshal Service, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts Executive Office of Public Safety. Professor DeBoli also has worked as a campaign aide to Senators John McCain and Lamar Alexander. He was last with me in April. Paul, welcome back, and thanks for spending this evening with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, glad to be here, George. Thank you. You know, we all lost something back in 1963, regardless of our age, those of us who were alive then and remember this horrible story. We all lost something. It was just like a hole in our body, and I don't think, Paul, it's ever gone away. It, ha- it hasn't, and, you know, I think that was part of a function of of the time, of the general mood and tenor of the country. I mean, I was four years old. I don't remember very much of it at the time, other than, you know, similar to you, being in the living room and watching my parents sitting on the couch crying. And it was only after I got a little older that I began to understand why that event was so significant, both because of what was happening at home in the United States, of of, of the U.S.'s position in the world. And that was the first presidential assassination that was really, you know, that really occurred during the age of the quote-unquote modern media. Um, You know, we we had the Lincoln assassination, we had the Garfield assassination, we had the uh, McKinley assassination, but those were things that people read about in the newspapers that didn't actually get a chance to, to see and experience and to feel. Uh, whereas the news coverage of the President Kennedy assassination and then later the assassinations of Dr. King and Bobby Kennedy, um, you know, people were right there in, you know, it was in their living room. Uh, and I think it affected people on, such, uh, on a very profound nature, on a very profound level. So. I remember the big news stories when Kennedy was president, the failed Bay of Pigs uh, trying to overthrow Castro in Cuba, uh, the missile crisis with the Soviet Union, which uh, successfully worked out as Kennedy and Khrushchev were smart enough to realize nuke wars aren't going to work between these two superpowers. That's and true. all those stories were happening, but... I didn't realize, nor did many other Americans at the time, Paul, that Kennedy and his brother Bobby stepped on a lot of toes in order to, you know, create more justice in this country and everything else. But they did tick off a lot of people, didn't they? Oh, they sure did. I mean, uh, you know, you can list you can you can list the people that uh, uh, that had grudges against them, either alphabetically or by order of importance. But um, there was the whole national security infrastructure. There was this this you know, perhaps apocryphal stories about JFK threatening to break the CIA into a thousand pieces. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had, you know, there were issues with, with, with organized labor and Jimmy Hoffa. I mean, there were so many people that they had, uh, that they had tread upon. And I'm not saying that the changes that they, that they propounded weren't good changes. I mean, they were. It's just that it ran against, you know, some, some, some deep-seated They, they stepped on toes. They sure did. And uh, he, and even the mob, they you know Bobby Kennedy decided he was going to go after the mob in a big way after he was the counsel for the McClellan Commission, 
and they and he was vicious on two people whose names keep coming up in this assassination, uh, Carlos Marcella and uh, Santo Traficante, uh, yeah. who, who I think played a big role in this too. Uh, I think there might have been some peripheral role for them. Um, you know, my research is kind of focusing more on. Um, uh, different forces within the U.S. government that might have had a vested interest in, 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 in blocking the Kennedy agenda. Um, but, uh, you know, certainly that does add fuel to the fire. Sure does. Uh, Would he have... Of, I'm sorry, of, go ahead, go ahead. The ability of the mafia to, to, to have all the pieces in place uh, to, 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 to have a presidential assassination is, is, is a little dubious. But, I mean, we do have these interesting characters on the periphery and you know there may have been some hidden links that we haven't uncovered yet, but I'm still working on it. Do you think he would have been a shoe in for re-election? Absolutely. Yeah, I think so too. Absolutely. I mean, you know, the, the visit to Dallas uh, in November of '63 was the kickoff to the 1964 presidential campaign. And he squeaked by with Nixon, of course. I mean, by one of the smallest margins ever in a presidential election. Less than 113,000 votes. Oh my God! Uh, and there have been some studies published about the number of dead people in in in, uh, in Cook County alone that voted, and what the elect could, what, what that effect could have been on the election. But I mean, it was a it was a razor thin margin in in uh, in nineteen in nineteen sixty. So we're with Paul Devoli. Uh, he's got a book called Conspiracy One Hundred and One. We'll talk about that a little bit later on this hour. Talk, let's talk first of all about after the Kennedy assassination. Uh, the Warren Commission was put together, Chief Justice Earl Warren and his uh, group, uh, to investigate this assassination. I think they did a lousy job, Paul. Your thoughts? Oh, by, by all accounts, they did a terrible job. I mean, they, they were, if you look at the language of Executive Order 11130 that created the Warren Commission, uh, their function was to basically rubber stamp, I mean, their stated function in the order was to rubber stamp the FBI investigation. Uh, I think the exact quote was to examine the evidence developed by the FBI, uh, by the Federal Bureau of Investigation, and any any additional evidence that may hereafter come to light to be uncovered by, by federal or state authorities. So, I mean, their stated function was to basically look over the FBI shoulder and rubber stamp it. But they were given full subpoena powers. Um, and And, but they... They, they exercise those in some cases, not in others. And, you know, to a large extent, it's easy to look, it's very easy to look over someone's shoulders and do some Monday morning quarterbacking. Um, but, you know, what we're talking about is, a, is, is something that was created on November 29th, um, 1963, and delivered its report in September of 1964. And the, and the unstated mission of the Warren Commission was to complete the report in advance of the 1964 presidential election. Exactly. So... The very notion that the federal government could even find its car keys in 10 months, let alone, you know, complete an investigation that had wide-ranging domestic policy issues, foreign policy issues, and, and may have reached the inner halls of government, is kind of preposterous in its face. Um, so, um, you know, for example, you know, one example would be the, um, of, all, of all of the people that were interviewed, interviewed by the Warren Commission. First of all, it was, I think it was 552 was the exact number of people that were interviewed. And those people included some witnesses to what happened uh, in Dealey Plaza, mm-hmm. uh, some witnesses uh, as to uh, Jack Ruby's assassination, some people who grew up with 
Lee Harvey Oswald, some people who served in the military with Lee Harvey Oswald, plus the forensic examiners, the medical examiners, etc. So that, that, that 552 number seems rather low, um, you know, and there should have been an attempt to bring in all of these 770-odd people that were in Dealey Plaza, and they failed miserably in, 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 in completing that investigation. And the one thing that I did find is that um, you know, the people that were in Dilly Plaza, you can you can divide them into, into two distinct groups. And one of those groups is the people that thought that the gut, that the gunshots came from the Deep. or the Texas School Book Depository, and that's one large group. But there's also a smaller group, somewhere around 40 odd people, uh, that insist that the gunshots came from behind the fence on the grassy knoll. And then when you cross-check those names. Uh, 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 and we have witness statements from the Dallas County Sheriff's Office and the Dallas PD, etc. And when you cross-check those names with the people that were called before the Warren Commission, you find an astounding number of people who thought that the gunshots came from the gra- grassy knoll that were not interviewed by the Warren Commission. One of the one of the best examples of that was a gentleman named Forrest Sorrells, who was the head of the Dallas Field Office of the U.S. Secret Service, uh, and they didn't call, you know. Soros wrote his official report. He gave, uh, he made written statements, etc. But they didn't actually call him as a witness until I think late April or early May of 1964. And then when they call, and then when they called him as a witness, they asked him no. And he was in the lead vehicle right in front of the president's car in the motorcade. They didn't ask him anything about the gunshots coming from the grassy knoll. Now, Jeez. there's probably no more authoritative source a trained investigator, a military veteran, etc., who would be able to, to describe where the gunshots came from in Forest Orals. Yet, yet they ask him no questions about what he saw and heard in the moments preceding the assassination up to the time the gunshots were fired. They, they ask him a lot of questions about, you know, people that might have had access to Oswald, what Oswald ate for dinner while he was in custody that night. I mean, the, the most incredibly trivial and banal questions I've ever seen asked of, 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 a, of a seasoned law enforcement professional in, 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 in my life. So It's almost as if the Warren Commission was set up to simply accept and prove that Oswald was the lone gunman. Uh, correct. Um, and it was it was Arlen Specter who propounded the magic bullet theory, uh, and who did a, <clears throat> excuse me as a staff attorney who did a lot of questioning of the witnesses, and um, you know but but again their stated goal is to review the evidence developed by the FBI and other federal and state law enforcement authorities, and 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 examine it and comment on it. Yet they did very little examination of their own. There was called the Dicta Belt recording, which was recorded from a motorcycle police officer's radio microphone that was stuck in the open position that became a key piece of evidence by the House Select Committee on Assassinations back in 1978, 15 years after the assassination, 15 years after the Warren Commission was put together. And they concluded that a second gunman had fired some of the shots. Well, um, I, th- I think what the actual conclusion was, and if you and and there are images out there that are available, uh, if you if you run the Dicta Belt recording through an oscilloscope that you know that that, that plots the frequency of, of, of the background noise, etc. Um, the 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 peaks in the in the oscillograph paper would be consistent with gunshots, and there are some audio analysts who believe that there could have been as many as seven shots. Jeez. But the thing that's interesting about 
about about um, about Oswald is that the gun the, the the gun was found very very quickly uh, after the assassination when, when when police began searching the Texas School Book Depository. Um, it was a five shot clip. Uh, some sorry six shot clip. Three rounds had been expended. There was a live round in the chamber. Uh, yet there was. Uh, yet it was not a full clip that had gone in there. Um, and the second thing was that um, even the th- even the three spent shell casings that were found on the floor by the window of the Texas School Book Depository were in such an odd position that might lead a person who was knowledgeable firearms to conclude that one of those spent shells was a space holder in the chamber to prevent dirt and uh, and grime from building up and causing mm-hmm. causing a misfire. Um, but the other thing that was significant was that Oswald had gone through Marine Corps basic training at uh, uh, on the on the on the East Coast, and you know in, in in their basic sniper 101 course, one of the things that they always teach people in a in a sniping situation is to police the brass. They have to pick up the spent shell casings. So Oswald is alone on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository. He allegedly shoots John F. Kennedy, hides the gun, doesn't pick up the shell casings. Then, less than an hour later, shoots Officer J.D. Tippett. In the theater, yeah. No, shoots Tippett on a, in the middle of the street in, 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 a, in, a, in, a, in a suburban area of Dallas, okay, and then stops to police the brass because we have several witnesses that say that Oswald you know, was picking up the spent shell casings after he shot Tippett. So it's incongruous that you have somebody alone on the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository who leaves the spent shell casings there, yet stops in the middle of the street in broad daylight to pick up the spent shell casings after the Tippett shooting. And the thing that's even stranger is that when Oswald was arrested, he was carrying a revolver. In a revolver, Mm -hmm. the spent shell casings are not ejected. So there was no brass to pick up, which might indicate that, that, that Oswald was using a semi-automatic pistol when he shot Tippett, which then raises the question, wasn't Oswald who shot Tippett at all? Uh, that's what I was going to ask you. Is it possible somebody else shot Tippett? It's very, it is very possible. But, I, but um, you know, there's a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a great photograph uh, taken, um, of the Texas School Book, uh, taken of the front of the Texas School Book Depository right after President Kennedy uh, is hit by the first shot that allegedly entered uh, his 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 you know five and three quarter inches below his shirt collar and exited at the knot of his necktie, and it appears as though Oswald is in is standing in the doorway of the Texas School Book Depository. Now some witnesses say it's not Oswald, it's Billy Lovelady. However, Oswald's own mother says that that's Oswald. Yeah, you would have you would think he would have run like crazy. Well, I mean, you know, you shoot, you know, he would have had to run upstairs, shoot the president again, and then come back downstairs and eat a tuna sandwich and buy a yeah, coke and, and just hang around there. One of the police officers having a coke shortly after the assassination. So there are a lot of things about Oswald's actions that just don't make sense. Well, especially that key phrase when he was interviewed by reporters as he was being let out originally, and he said he's a patsy. He's that, a patsy, but you know, it was funny because Jim Laval, um, who was if you've ever seen the picture of of uh, Ruby shooting Oswald, uh, he's this he's this bigger than life Dallas with the big big white big white hat, right? Was that yeah, him? Yeah, tan suit, 
big white hat. And he always found it strange that when they, and, and this guy had literally over the course of his career conducted hundreds of, hundreds of interviews um, of, of, of suspects in murder cases. And the one thing that he always found odd was that Oswald never said, I didn't shoot President Kennedy or I didn't shoot Tippett. He said, I didn't shoot anybody. That's right. Um, which, again, is, 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 is at least in Congress in the way that, that most uh, murder suspects react. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.